What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the DeFi by Design podcast. This is episode 98. We are here with Ismail. Uh, we're going to be talking about Lagrange Labs. Lagrange, um, we're going to hear more about it. I believe it's a mathematical term. Um, I remember hearing about it uh, throughout classes. So we're going we're gonna to talk more about that, what it, what it is doing in the Ethereum space. Um, and uh, Ismail, I mean, you know, it's good to have you on. It's good to have you on. Thank and, you. And uh, could you introduce yourself and yeah. uh, tell us what you do with Lagrange? Thank you, Rob. I'm excited to be on. And you're correct. Lagrange is a is a French mathematician, and he's he's responsible for a number of the a number of the 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 constructions that are highly important for zero knowledge proof systems. So, um, so you know, great to meet everyone here. Um, I'm the founder of Lagrange Labs. We build types of cross-chain interoperability, state and storage that is more performant than messaging protocols and bridges for certain DeFi applications. The way we like to describe it is that if you deploy N instances of a DeFi app across N different chains, there are implicit relationships that exist, some of which are one-to-one, -one, like what messaging protocols and bridges handle, and some of those are more complicated and depend on more, more dynamic data relationships. And those are some of the things that we, we built. And the the architecture you mentioned is ZK, yet mm -hmm. the user experience I I envision when you say n app instances over n chains sounds mm -hmm. inherently cross chain. So yes, could you explain the the relationship between the ZK architecture um, and and still the compatibility among chains? That's a very good question. You know the way we like to think about cross chain interoperability is as a fundamentally modular product. There are, in our view, three principal components. The first is state validity. So how do you prove that a given block header is in fact valid for a given chain? In traditional bridging, this is done through intermediary nodes or K of N assumptions over some protocol responsible for attesting the state. There is the second component, which is transport, which is what actually takes that block header, that proof, or that attestation of state and writes it somewhere else. And the third component is what we think of as computation. In other words, what can you prove within this block header and what type of data schema manipulations can you do to the underlying format of the message? And when we think of cross-chain, we think of these three components as in the final state, very independent, wherein applications can potentially grab different computation layers, different uh, transport layers, and different validity layers in order to properly build an application that can handle whatever the application-specific requirements they have for their multi-chain uh, DAP. And so what we focus on is twofold. We focus on building novel computational models to prove expressive computation on top of block headers. And this is one of our products that we refer to as ZK Big Data and ZK MapReduce. So how can you take a given block header and prove these arbitrarily large, for example, pricing relationships on it? Um, moving averages of price, TWAPs, VWAPs, et cetera. Um, and the second component of what we build is what we think of as uh, state committees or state proofs. So how do we allow for certain chains, applications to prove or consume proofs of the state of that chain without requiring um, insecure intermediary attestations? So entirely zero knowledge. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, okay. 
<clears throat> when you when you talk about block headers mm -hmm. inf and information in blocks, before yeah. we get to what you guys do with a block, mm -hmm. uh, could could you kind of flesh out like the the components of of a, a block with respect to yeah. how you then use this block? That's a very good question. Yeah. So within a block header, you can think of it as having a number of properties and metadata associated with that block, as well as multiple trees um, that can be used to determine the state of various aspects of the chain at that point in time or that block height. That includes the state tree, which encodes all contract state in that chain and all account state in that chain. The receipt tree, which is all um, execution traces and the transaction tree, which is uh, all the transactions included in that block. Both, all three of those are, are Merkle partition tries and encode different aspects of the chain with respect to that certain block height. So when we think of computation that you can run on top of a block header, it's how do you leverage these existing data structures and zero knowledge computation on top of them to be able to derive relevant properties about the chain at that block height from that block header. For example, all block headers contain contract state, which means if you want to determine the price of UNIV3, the spot price, for example, you would need to run a Merkle inclusion proof on two leafs of the tree at that height to determine, let's say, both volumes of assets in that pool. If you, for example, now want to do a moving average of that price, you would need to do multiple blocks in a proof, which could be done on multiple block headers, or it could be done on a single block header where you prove what this, the, the historical block headers were with respect to the current block header, since they're all linked. Uh, and this question. allows you to have these, yep. Can these block headers synchronize across chains? You have a block header on an avalanche. Can you mm -hmm. sync this block header in, a, in, a, in one Merkle tree with a block header from Arbitrum? So someone could relay them over, but you know, I, I, the block header is a, is a inherent structure to every chain. Um, and as such, they're not, they're not intrinsically linked. And that's where I think looking at it from a meta perspective, that's where cross chain really comes in. It is, we have all these disparate data structures, which we can almost think of as independent databases where every block is a version of that database. On top of this, we have one giant asynchronously updated data lake. What with all this information can you build? Right now, we think of cross-chain as this one-to-one -one relay, where you take the current state of one chain and write that to the next chain. But as we look at it from a more broad perspective, and we see all these settlement layers and all these updates to these inherent data structures, what are the things you can build on top that aggregate proofs of state? Yeah, you've thought about this question much more than I have. How, how do you at Lagrange address this yeah. question? So we build computational tooling that allows you to efficiently prove properties across all of these heterogeneously updating um, independent settlement layers, independent block layers, where you could have computation that you can verify that runs on top of state across a series of different chains concurrently. Um, and the question of what you can build on that, we're on opinionated on what you should build, but there's certain use cases that we think make a lot of sense. You know, I think most DeFi apps that we've spoken with have issues and concerns over how they're pricing collateral. Options protocols, lending protocols, derivatives protocols are all dependent on off-chain price feeds in order to price assets. And these off-chain price feeds generally don't account for liquidity of an asset pair. They don't account for how much slippage you get at the point of liquidation. 
and they don't account for where that liquidity is located. So if you're on Arbitrum and someone gives you $10 million of wrapped Algorand collateral, there's a question of what you could actually liquidate that for in the event of a liquidation event. And so this is why a lot of protocols struggle to support long tail collateral. As you now start being able to unpack and unfurl some of these more complicated data relationships, you can remove the dependence on these static off-chain price feeds and instead price collateral natively based on how much you could actually liquidate it for realistically on the settlement space, on the execution space where your application is deployed. Okay. In terms of the user experience from a user mm -hmm. perspective, this looks like uh, lending on, on, on Avalanche. Um, I can, I can collateralize my chicken NFTs on, on Avalanche and an NFT lending protocol. And I can take out a borrow position to buy things on Arbitrum natively, make that borrow on Arbitrum. And then when my, uh, hmm, so I would, I would then need to repay my loan or get liquidated in which, uh, I would need to know how there would be a, a question of how much to, uh, liquidate my, my NFT for on, on Avalanche. Right. So. Um, the liquidity circumstances on Avalanche would need to be, they would need to tell Arbitrum when to liquidate my position. Is this- You see that, 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 I love this. This is what I love about this type of technology because that's entirely different than the use case flow that I was thinking, but that's also a completely valid one. And that's actually okay. a very good use case when you want to lock an asset on one chain and lend against on a different chain without requiring it to move or be wrapped. And that's another very, very interesting use case. Um, the example I was saying was just very simple where you have one asset on Arbitrum and you want to lend that on Arbitrum, for example, and the protocol wants to know how much it sells for on just Arbitrum without worrying about any other chain's price. But the instance when you're talking about trying to price something cross-chain is another one where this type of functionality is very important, especially when you consider price to be a factor of multiple DEXs concurrently to say Arbitrum needs awareness, not just of you know what Trader Joe is on Avalanche, but it'll need what Sushi is on Avalanche. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if UniB3 has a deployment on Avalanche, but if it does, it'll at least know that too. It'll need to know where to liquidate it to, it needs to know when to liquidate, it needs to know all these properties associated with that with that um, state of the chain. And that is that is where you know some of the, the, the more dynamic computation, more dynamic cross-chain relationships that aren't necessarily handled by bridges and messaging protocols become very relevant. Okay, so you were describing how Lagrange mm -hmm. uh, interacts with the state of the chain and uh, its its block headers. Yeah. Um, and then I interrupted you and, and asked, asked a question. So so could you, now that we know like mm -hmm. what, what a block header uh, yeah. is, could you describe what Lagrange does um, with these these block headers and these uh and and how it yeah could you could you could you kind of explain the the block headers role in the state yeah. of the chain yeah so every new block has a new block header and when we think about block headers in the context of cross chain we really need to think about kind of the, the logical flow of what one does with a block header so if you have two chains ethereum and avalanche let's say and you want to use the state of Ethereum on Avalanche. Avalanche can't make an external call to Ethereum and figure anything out. So Avalanche needs to be able to verify things 
just natively within its execution environment. So what does it need to verify? That a, some random group of bytes that correspond to a block header are in fact the correct block header at a certain height on Ethereum, right? They're not just a block header I made up, it's not just a block header you made up, that this is in fact the, the correct finalized canonical block header at height X. Next, it needs to verify some computation that's done on top of that block header. Unless it runs all that computation natively on chain, which is gonna be expensive, you would ideally wanna run that as your own alt context to verify it succinctly. So you need to prove almost two properties in this case. What is the block header? And what am I doing on top of the block header? And so Lagrange has a few different mechanisms to handle each of those components. For chains that have a block header structure or finality of consensus that's provable, right? Where you can generate a proof for the consensus of that chain, we, we generally use that because there's no reason to have anything else that you can just prove what the block header is based on how the chain executes. For chains that don't, for example, think of an optimistic rollup where finality is defined by game theory and not by a provable mechanism over a short period of time. Then we have what we call state committees, which leverage restaked or rehypothecated collateral to execute verifiable attestations to state that we can generate recursive proofs on. Um, and once you now kind of take it for granted that you have that block header that you can prove is valid, you can run computation on that. And the computation that we most natively support is distributed computation. So highly efficient big data scale computation that can be run on top of these on-chain state structures, right? Which is anything you could run in RDD, distributed SQL, MapReduce, et cetera, you can now run in the zero-null context on top of our ZK big data framework. Okay. And this I, allows you the pricing and all these things we talked about before. Got it. Okay. And mm -hmm. hmm. yeah, there there is some technical components that are they they sound like um they're very I mean, they're, they're very abstract, but they're very advanced. Like you guys have spent a lot of time thinking about these block structures and yeah. their, uh, their current me like mechanisms, right? Which are mm -hmm. all mostly game theory secured, like mm -hmm. proof of proof of stake secures the, um, Ethereum blockchain, obviously. Yeah. And then, and then the idea there is that the, uh, validators are proving the validity of the chain. And each time they, they make that proof, they uh, post a new state uh, of the chain. So then there's all the ZK, ZK mm. kind of computation yeah. on, on top of the game theoretically secure chain. Um, what, what's your opinion on, on ZK at the base layer? Do you have, yeah. you know, do, do you, I could kind of anticipate, but... I'm curious what what you think of uh, zk sync or the other the other zk native layer ones. Yeah, we think we think very highly of of any chain that uses zero knowledge to prove its state transitions as, as a rollup on Ethereum. We also think very highly of optimistic rollups. I think they both have use cases that they're very well optimized for and very distinct advantages and disadvantages. Um, I think that being able to prove an arbitrary state transition. Um, a EVM, for example, as a as ZK Sync would do, or a Starknet does, um, allows them to leverage efficiently the existing collateral that underlies Ethereum consensus um, in order to secure themselves. And I think this creates a very interesting structures where you can nest these rollups on top of each other 
and create increasing, increasing, increasing amounts of scalability and ideally atomic transactions between each of these layers um, that have really only an increase in settlement time rather than an increase in, for example, um, a draw, sorry, rather than a drop in security to try to increase block space and throughput, right? Where you can, you can keep nesting rollups on top of each other and all you do is increase computational cost of having to compute all these, these state transitions and all you do is increase um, the time to find but you don't decrease security. That's, I think, a very interesting property of, of nested ZK rollups. So we're, we're a very, very big fan of those, and we're a big fan of nested OLUs, too. Got it. Okay. And and Lagrange is not at the at the layer one level. It is the main application to create Merkle trees of the various chain states? Yeah, so, so we're not a layer one. So our goal is to help cross-chain interoperability be as functional and expressive as possible. So the question is, what can you do between chains? And that's the question that we're answering. And the technology that we use to answer that is entirely zero-knowledge proof-based. So we're not on the L1. We're not um, uh, like a messaging protocol, like a layer zero and axler, though we, you know, we do work with some of these protocols to help, to help with security and to help with expressivity of computation. Um, we're very much, you can think of us as tooling for building dApps that are more functional and are more um, dynamic, right? It, so if you think about a, a DeFi app. Yeah. Pardon? Is it fair to add scalability into those other ways you describe a, a more useful overall app? Yeah, I think scalability is very important. And the way we think of it is that if you are building a dApp today, you might just be able to build it with very close, simple state transitions in one chain, but it's very likely you're gonna need awareness of two things. You're gonna need awareness of other applications on the chain you're on, potentially awareness of the historical state of those applications, and you're going to need awareness of the present and historical state of cross-chain applications as a developer of a DeFi app, right? Lending protocol apps need this, options apps needs this, derivatives apps need this, um, yield ags need this when they're routing asset allocations, most modern DeFi apps need awareness of, of external applications beyond themselves. What we do is we build tooling that makes that more efficient. And and in the traditional financial world, this yeah. is common. Like there's yeah. multiple exchanges and there is interoperability of price feeds from from multiple sources. Exactly. Does this occur when and, and you may not know the traditional financial uh, format mm -hmm. of how they share these data feeds, but on the on the blockchain, no matter what traditional finance comes up with, it it seems more efficient because it's almost like we're all interacting with this uh, interoperable database. Whereas I mm -hmm. I doubt um, traditional financial institutions are sharing databases with one another. But it's a, it's not as um, it's not as as cohesive um, because they're not sharing that information. So, two part question: How how does um, how, how does latency work when when yeah. you're sharing um, data from uh, chain to chain, and and how does this this relate? to 
a traditional financial architecture yeah. um, database or otherwise where they where they share price feeds. Yeah. So that's a that's a good question, right? Because you still need to share price feeds in traditional finance, to your point. Because if you're if you're a lending company and you allow someone to post a stock as collateral to take a loan on that, you're gonna to need to understand the price of that stock, the spot price, and then whatever price you can liquidate that for in the event that someone's margin, right? in the event that someone gets margin called. So I think that's that's a very important aspect of trying to build any system, right? Where if you had to liquidate a stock to a certain exchange or a certain order book in the event that someone was margin called, you would need to know the price that you could liquidate that for to understand when to make the margin call. And when you think of these kind of atomic liquidations on chain in these over collateralized lending apps, there is really no ability for them to understand a priori to a liquidation, how much they could liquidate that for. They have to rely on a secondary price feed that would feed questionably accurate data back in derived from opaque sources that they're hoping that they could liquidate for that amount, right? Like a chain link price feed does not accurately say how much you could liquidate ETH for on a ZK Sync L3. It, it's a uniform single price of what they believe Ethereum trades for everywhere. There's no context in the location for that price information and price discovery. So that creates some somewhat problematic dynamics when you think about building these DeFi apps that have to be anti-fragile and able to run atomically without user intervention. And so when we look at Web2 movement of information, it's very simple to transact between two applications where you just call an API and they return you data in some predefined format. In Web3, it's a lot more complicated because these chains can't call external. So you're generally constrained. Exactly. Exactly. You're generally constrained by the data you can access. And so what this type of functionality allows is for people to build more dynamic, more expressive, more anti-fragile, more secure DeFi apps by really being able to leverage these inherent data lakes that these applications sit on top of. Okay. So the current architecture of uh, interoperability across chains puts the, ch the uh, state channels of, of one chain into this cloud-like, it's a very Web2 term, but cloud-like structure above the chain. And then to access data from another chain, this other you know chain B over here would have to pull that data in from that cloud-like data sharing structure. Whereas this ZK technology could share state channels directly to the chain without uh, a intermediary, albeit maybe decentralized yeah. one? That I think that's a very good framing. I think, I think when you think of how we would feed multi-chain data to a chain right now, it's going to be through an Oracle, right? Where mm -hmm. you, know, you run a bunch of nodes or I run a bunch of nodes and we feed data back onto one of the chains. You can't have a chain that, or an application on a chain that dictates for itself what data it wants to consume from what block height, from what formula for how they want to derive these properties and run it themselves, right? So you lose the agency as an application developer to really be able to customize how you would like to consume multi-chain data. And if you were to consume it for an off-chain price feed, you lose security, right? Because you're, you're inherently building a trustless application with a heavy trust assumption on your data source. Um, and that's yeah. a limitation that we have today. Yeah. And with cross-chain and it, Chainlink always had these, these, uh, it was honestly, it's about time, you know, that mm -hmm. like there's a project that kind of calls out 
not not that you're saying doing it specifically, but your product calls out the inherent centralization weaknesses of Oracle systems in general, like yeah. Chainlink specifically, yeah. who, who's always kind of been called as you know a relatively centralized uh, service. Um, you know, in, in blockchains in general, decentralization is is normally an advantage, and and, and this is decentralizing Oracle services as a as a uh, product in you know in in general. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I think I think that's a very fair assessment. When we think of oracles, you always have the need to feed off-chain data that's inherently off-chain, on-chain, right? Like if I want to determine how much a square foot of real estate in Soho is priced at to, to issue some on-chain equivalent to that, um, we always need an off-chain feed. But for, for data feeds that don't rely on off-chain data, the use of an off-chain set of nodes to feed that data on-chain today is a limitation in infrastructure and architecture because we don't have these types of computation to allow you to do that right now. Where you can't prove you know, these end-to-one relationships across a series of other chains and a series of historical blocks in one proof somewhere. So you have to rely on the off-chain actor to go aggregate that data for you and tell you the result. And this is why all of those Oracle systems are game theoretically secured. Because exactly. they, they, they don't, okay. They, they don't have the the compatibility uh, chain to chain um, to secure them uh, based on a proof of, exactly. of proving the validity of state channels on one chain um, so that the other chain shares that proof. Exactly. And then as you kind of think of the derivative of this and you start going a level deeper, one of the advantages you have is not just the security, but the expressivity. Because now that you don't have to rely on some off-chain actor to feed you data every so often, you can build applications that consume data in novel and personalized ways to that application the same way they would if they were building data infrastructure in Web2. And so you increase security and by extension, you then increase what you can build. Yeah. Yep. So security as well as as well as well scalability, which is is yeah. what, what we are, at least I'm on, of the understanding this is preventing a lot of um, applications at scale but, but when we think of web 2 applications it's the mm -hmm. user experience feel when you use it the smoothness of it but it's also the the scale at which these applications can operate and we heard we had a podcast with uh the founder of connect yeah cross-chain messaging protocol um the other day and he he mentions these these um web 2 monopoly monopolies which he believes are going to be decentralized by web 3 yeah. applications yeah. but Web3 is not at scale where it, it could support these decentralized applications. Um, exactly. And, and we've talked about security for most of this conversation, but um, there is also a benefit of throughput and scalability, um, mm -hmm. which could bring about these Web2 style applications at scale. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the way the one of the ways we like to think about it is when we think of building Web3 stacks, you're trying to build things on top of each other that leverage the same trust assumptions as the underlying layer that they're built on, right? Because if you start adding weak points into the stack, it's very hard to build applications that, that have the, the requisite security required to really function in a decentralized world. Where ideally, if you have your, your base layer of Ethereum, you want all of the scalability solutions that settle on Ethereum to leverage the security of Ethereum. 
You want all the middleware that those applications to consume to leverage the security of Ethereum as well, or to be able to be you know, zero knowledge and leverage the security of wherever they settle. And so this is how we sort of think about scaling effectively and scaling securely and making sure that as you build these applications on top of each other, you're able to build things that stay as anti-fragile as the simple applications, right? Because the reason we still use DEXs instead of, you know, the order books is I would argue not because you can't build a crypto order book that is quasi on chain. It's because if you're going to rely on something that's on chain, you want to inherit the security that's from the chain. And if you want to rely on an off-chain order book, you're going to rely on an off-chain order book. As you think about building these, these, these more dynamic applications on chain, like building a central order book on chain, it has to leverage the underlying security of the chain for there to be a case for its settling on chain. And these chains have different security models. Like if you were yeah. to build this between Bitcoin and Ethereum, a central order book, mm-hmm. how, would, how would you uh, reconcile proof of work and proof of stake? Exactly. I, 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 I don't know how you would actually even build a, a central order book between those two. I'd imagine you'd, you'd want some kind of drive chain or, or some of the, the, the new Bitcoin constructions that, that I am not an expert on. But okay, okay. Well, I, I think those who are still with us are are relatively yeah. technical. So I, I'm I'm curious about Lagrange's influence on on zk, um, yeah, proof constructions. Um, yeah. So we have a number of proprietary um, uh, constructions that are very very performant for our use cases, and the use cases that we are optimized for is very much this distributed computation on top of on-chain state data. You know, I think you're maybe familiar with some of the, the sequential execution models for ZKVMs, right? That's kind of the risk zero, the nil foundation, um, as well as the ZKVM work. What we focus on is, is distributed um, computation. So things like Spark, Hadoop, RDD, distributed SQL, and some of these more paralyzable execution models that can now be run on top of large on-chain data sets in a zero-knowledge context, which we think is very viable when we start talking about these, these highly fragmented on-chain state layers and being able to synthesize all this data analysis on top of that. Could you talk a little bit about how important SQL is to the um, non-blockchain applications now? Um, yeah. Um, so I would say distributed computation broadly is the dominant paradigm in Web2 for processing large data sets. And there are different ways that can be run. And distributed SQL is one of those that, that's very viable, as well as things like MapReduce and RDD, which are ways to process large amounts of data in parallel execution formats that can scale uh, with log. And what that enables is for, is for you to run these, these, these very large computational jobs that are in parallel and highly efficient instead of sequential, which would then scale the amount of data increases, right? Because if you had to run a giant loop, for example, right? If you're familiar with like loops in computing computer science where you're just running through everything one by one, as you grow the amount of data, that loop gets longer and longer and longer and longer and longer to the point where it takes forever to run, you don't really want to run it anymore. Well, the question is, what if instead of running it all independent, individually, you ran each loop instance one by one on a different machine and then merged them all together? You could, in theory, run that as a function of the time it takes to run one of them independently, and then the time, because you're doing them all in parallel, and the time it takes to merge. 
And so you can run these very large computational jobs, and SQL is one of the examples of what you can do with this, very efficiently. And you can do very expressive computation at scale. And this is very common in Web2 and very common in the big data stacks leveraged by most large Web2 companies, right? You know, Facebook, Google, Amazon all have huge data lakes and huge data engineering teams. What we do is we allow this type of analysis to be run from a DAP trustlessly on multi-chain fragmented state data. And, and this is, um, be, before it, it translates to Web3, these Web2 companies are still using AWS, Microsoft Azure, these cloud compute services to provide mm-hmm. parallel computation. Yeah, they do. They, they run that. You can, you can generally spin up parallel computation jobs and all of this. Okay. But in Web 2, 3, if you think about it, right, let's say you're a DAP and you want to price something based on moving averages of multi-chain deck states. So you want to determine where to allocate assets to from a yield aggregator by running a series of analyses on lending app performance across a few different chains. And then you want your deck, your, your DAP to be able to independently decision where to deploy assets to based on lending rates that are across three different chains. In that example, you would need to be able to process all of that data rapidly so that your lending app can analyze it in decision or your yield ag can analyze it in decision. In that case, you need efficient computation and you need to be trustless in a zero knowledge context. And that's what you can do with this type of computational model. Yeah, and it, it benefits I think of it as these kind of four steps that you would need to go from chain to off-chain Oracle to then computation of the data on in this Oracle database. Mm-hmm. And that's each step, you know, is, is um, I, it's just, it's just, you know, yeah. further away from the inherent security practices and the uh, latency increases as you take more steps away from your ultimate. Exactly. Um, destination, which would be, you know, taking it well, right now, web two uh, goes to these clouds, mm-hmm. the cloud pulls them down. So it's like one off um, from each of their internal uh, data computation engines. But the, the security practices, if you just go mm-hmm. directly, as well as the scalability, uh, the security benefits yeah. and the, the scalability benefits are are greatly increased from from a direct communication um, between those chains or the or those Web two applications or those financial institutions um, or the integrity of that data um, and the the scalability of that data and I, I'm I, I see like the the inherent security benefits you know the yeah. uh, the scalability benefits. Um, and I really, I really enjoy the idea of, of scalability benefits. I think security is like yeah. so important, but it's boring. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. but like scalability is so exciting because we can think about all the possibilities of what, of what, what we can do with um, more technology, more you know, yeah. uh, just more real estate. You know, to to kind of think about these applications that are now possible with this this innovation, um, and you combine that with kind of the idea of the nested rollups. It doesn't just have to be ZK. You know, yeah. we can we can increase scalability by nesting these rollups, uh, nest a, a Arbitrum and an Optimism. You know, Ethereum sharding could just be a series mm. of nested uh, shards. So, the opportunities, uh, like t- 
to innovate further in scalability are greatly mm-hmm. unleashed with a uh, direct channel to share uh, the state of the ch- of, of chains. Um, I, it, it was this a was was this a Lagrange theorem? Like which which theorem yeah. is this that kind of like you know op- opened this whole uh, this whole field up? So so you know I think the way we see settlement layers is that in execution layers is that we're we're increasing the amount of block space but we're not increasing the amount of tools that allow you to interrupt between block space in other words you have you're going to have thousands of app rollups um likely in the next few years with all these these, these new app rollups as a service providers that are launching you're going to have l3s on starknet l3s on on um uh on on zk sync you're going to have orbit yeah. rollups on arbitrum you're going to have OPT stack chains. You're going to have all of the OPT stack rollups. You have all these different rollups that are being created that are all settling on um, different settlement layers and all have their own independent execution states. And so what you're, you need to do is to have cross-chain models that can properly interact with all of this different state safely. And when I say safely and security, like I, I agree with you that, that in the purest form, security can be very boring. What I think security and scalability, where they become interesting is when you think about what you can build on top of them. Like think about just a very simple yield aggregator, like a urine or a beefy, right? Well, how does it allocate assets? Every so often there's a tend or a harvest function call, at which point these yield aggregators rebalance and allocate assets across a series of different yield bearing strategies. These function calls are called whenever someone deposits assets or whenever, there's a regular interval that passes. And they're constrained by only being able to access the data that they can directly read, right? And now you talk about all these different applications deployed in all these different chains. Are we going to have thousands and thousands of independent yield aggregators? At some point, it doesn't make sense. What you need is to be able to have yield aggregators that can compare multi-chain state with the exact security mechanisms they use today to be able to now take a single-chain yield aggregator and make it capable of deploying assets multi-chain. That's the kind of things that, that we think this type of technology very naturally unlocks. To take a DeFi app and then to expand what you can do with it. Yeah. Wow. This, this is heavy. And I, I expect that there's like, um, you know, this is going to seem so obvious to people like in the long mm-hmm. run, but then it's going to people, you know, just developers are going to have that moment. Like, like, why didn't I think of that? You know, like, um, I think it's what, what we all think of, you know, as like an idealistic interconnected, um, blockchain, w- which is also multi-chain with like kind of a diversity built into it for uniqueness, yeah. competitiveness and, and choice where, you know, you can still choose to operate, um, on one chain or another, um, an app chain, you know, yeah. Axie infinity, the NFT game has its own chain exactly. layer threes and fours and five ultimately are or app chains, depending on how, how many applications are deployed on that particular yeah. chain and, and the interconnectedness of all of those applications, um, I think was mm. a aspiration to a lot of developers and yeah. has not been executed on yet until now. I think we're, I think we're at the precipice of some very exciting innovations in scalability, security and cross chain functionalities. And I think to your point, it's going to unlock a lot of new application layer um, products 
that we're going to really be very excited about. You know, like I think I think Blur is one that we're very excited about as well. I think with what we've seen with the Blur airdrop, smart tokenomics and distribution strategies can really drive interesting adoption. And as you now start thinking about being able to process large amounts of data, you can start building things like Blur that are not decisioning off chain, but are in fact decisioning on chain, like autonomous trustless airdrop mechanisms like what Blur runs. And so what you can create is some very, very exciting applications that were otherwise infeasible before. Yeah, the, the classes of applications out there are so, I mean, they're endless, right? Like. Yeah. Um, which is really, really cool to like, let your imagination run about what you could build, uh, with just frankly, way better security, way better scalability. Exactly. There's, there's all the new primitives, yeah. you know, spoons, if you will, whereas you could fork a traditional finance institution, you know, architecture, all exactly. the web two applications that, that people know and love, you know. To call them forks is maybe a little bit, uh, mm -hmm. you know, disrespectful. But like people, you know, like using these applications, they spend time on them, yeah. build relationships on them. Um, could could pragmatically choose an architecture of a distributed compute, um, and and provide a better product. Um, arguably, you know, at kind of just the behind the. The uh, behind the scenes, under the hood components that mm -hmm. aren't really facing a user per experience and, and the majority of users would not notice, yeah. um, except for the in increased performance. Yeah, I think that's that's very that's very exciting. And I think we're very close to converging to a point like that with with the growth of ZKVMs, with the growth of scalability solutions and the growth of tooling for interoperability, like some of the stuff that we're building. I really think that it's going to be this kind of aha unlock moment for a lot of developers who can now build things in Web3 that they couldn't build in Web3 six months ago. Where, you know, six months ago, you were, you were constrained to very small function sizes on Ethereum with very limited data access, no historical data, no real trustless cross-chain data, static price feeds with, with complicated and opaque risk assumptions associated with them. And now you'll be able to access data from anywhere. You'll be able to access derivatives and analysis of data from anywhere. And you'll be able to build far larger and more expressive applications that are more secure, more fault tolerant, anti-fragile, and are actually a lot more fun for the end user to play with. Yeah, right. Yep. And that, that's what that's what like the majority of users are looking at. It's like how much fun it is. Um, but exactly. then... Uh, yeah, that that that's great. I, exactly for for mass adoption and 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 yeah. uh, all all these types of applications. Um, th this has been a blast. I know we're we're closing it on time. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm I'm still curious which Lagrange theorems impacted the uh, the construction of, uh, you know, not necessarily Lagrange, uh, yeah, innovations in particular, but just like, um, what kind of mathematical you know, theories did you incorporate uh, when thinking about ZK proofs? Yeah. Um, so twofold. And anything else you'd like to share? Yeah. So twofold. Lagrange interpolation is a component of zero knowledge proofs. Um, and it's a component of a lot of things in mathematics and cryptography. Also, we love the kind of the mental model of the Lagrange point, right? This, this point in space between two large celestial bodies 
where an object sitting there rotates on its axis instead of being drawn to, to either of the, the, the large massive bodies because it sits at a, at a point of, of equilibrium between the gravity of these two, these two large objects. And I'm not a physicist, so I might have butchered that explanation, but that's roughly speaking what it is. And we've loved that concept. This is the with, Lagrange with, point at the, yeah. at the middle of these other two celestial bodies? Exactly. They're caught up in their magnetic fields. It's somewhere. It's somewhere. Exactly. Instead of being them. drawn towards either, it sits in the middle and rotates on its axis. Okay. And we've loved that concept oh. cross chain because we think of these chains as these two massive settlement layers with huge collateral on the validator sets, huge security, huge communities. And cross chain, in our view, should fundamentally be this very light piece that's drawn towards neither that doesn't have any influence or effect from either and just sits there exists in the background and allows for things to happen like a revolving door just chain and just kind of you're just passing through cool and and okay so that's lagrange point and anything else you'd like to you'd like to share about um your build process so far or your journey yeah. kind of up until this point we um yeah we're we're you know we're very excited about having a, a test net launch that's going to be this summer for our lagrange point uh sure sorry our lagrange state proof uh infrastructure um which we'll be at integrating with some some very early development partners that we're excited to announce soon um and then we're also intending to have a test net for our zk our first zk big data product zk MapReduce, likely later this summer as well um, and I think I think these are going to hopefully be aha moments for a lot of DeFi developers, kind of seeing what they can interact with and seeing what they can build with these new paradigms. You know, our cryptography team has been hard at work, um, and uh, yeah, we've been we've been on the we've been pushing forward some some pretty big uh, some pretty big advancements recently. Uh, we've been actively growing it pretty quickly. So, shout out to everybody on the LeBronch team. Cheers, guys. Yes, it, really excited to to see um the the product of uh the research and the thought mm -hmm. you, you guys have put into this um where where can people find you you know if uh listeners want to reach out maybe they work yeah. with a project that that are interested in integrating um yep. how could they contact you um so our website is uh, lagrange.dev um and our twitter is all is lagrange dev one word right lagrange dev one word um you can contact me be probably easiest on Twitter um, at Ismail underscore H underscore R, or you can email me, which you know I probably shouldn't say my email, but it's ismaillagrange.dev. It probably wouldn't be very hard for anyone to guess. Cool, awesome. Well, uh, it was a pleasure having you on. There's one last question um, that we ask each each podcast yeah. guest. Um, if you, um, the analogy we use or hypothetical is if you're stuck in an elevator, which is you know. Yeah. Let's, let's say you have an elevator pitch, two minutes to explain to anyone. Uh, you could explain, you know, anyone uh, dead or alive, um, Lagrange, what you guys are building and, you know, ZK's technology yeah. and, uh, you know, who, who would you choose and why? I would ideally talk to web to data infrastructure and data engineering developers. And I would explain to them the types of dApps that they could now build in Web3 and how they leverage very similar computational models and can be built with very similar computational models to what they can build in Web2. I think when we unlock this larger pool of developers who are focused on some very specific aspects of the application stack, 
we're able to build things that are that are far more robust and fault tolerant. I think as the number of Web3 developers can start to become this, this pool of Web2 developers too, we're going to be able to have some, some very interesting things built that are far more secure and far more fun to play with. You know, I, I think there's a lot of great developers in the world who've been kind of turned off from Web3 development because of how kind of niche and specific a lot of the engineering paradigms are. And as we start opening up and expanding the engineering paradigms to be closer aligned with what you could build and how you could build it in Web2, you're going to be able to have a larger pool of people who are building applications that settle on chain without having to understand the semantics of how the chains work. Got I think it. a good application, I think a good infrastructure developer now asks themselves, how can I take this incredibly complicated, dynamic and insider focused and insider specific domain expertise that someone would require to hold in order to build something in Web3? And how can I synthesize all this into a simple product that a developer who understands the engineering frameworks, but doesn't understand where the engineering frameworks are being applied, can now leverage it. Yeah, this goes out to all the massive Web2 monopolies. Bezos, Zuckerberg, if you're listening, it's Ishmael underscore H <laughs> on Twitter. Reach out to him. And uh, say less to those guys, more uh, more the more the developers who are working at those companies and who are who are who are interested in starting to leverage some of the cool innovations that they've had in their application level development on Web3 with this type of application level development. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you guys, everyone reach out, Ismail on Twitter. And uh, it, it was a pleasure having you on. Um, yeah, Thank you, I Rob. hope we uh, stretch this far and wide and, and share uh, Lagrange with the world. Thank you, Rob. Really enjoyed being on. Likewise. Cheers. Cheers.